Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. And as usual, thanks to all of you that support the podcast via Patreon. Every pledge is hugely appreciated. So I did say that the previous episode with Rob Jonah would be the last outsider episode for a while, in order to make way for the clinical reasoning series. However, there's time for one more, and I'm delighted to squeeze this one in before Dr. Roger Carey kicks off the clinical reasoning series, where we talk about sciencey thinking in the context of evidence-based clinical reasoning. So make sure you hit the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss out on what will be a brilliant collection of conversations. But on this Outsider episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Geeta Ramdhari. Geeta is a consultant allied health professional in neuromuscular disease based at Queen Square Centre for Neuromuscular Diseases in UCLH in London. She's an honorary associate professor at University College London and a visiting professor at Kingston University. And Geeta's worked as a physiotherapist since 1995 and developed a special interest in neurology early on. She completed her PhD in 2008, looking at walking patterns, endurance and orthotic interventions for people with Charcot Mary tooth disease. And last year, Geeta wrote a wonderful blog on her experiences of the interaction and sometimes clash between the physiotherapy culture and her own mixed heritage and cultural background. The blog is titled Awakening to the Impact of Culture on How We Deliver Care and Treat Our Colleagues. And in her blog, Geeta talks about the challenges she experienced as a student, educator and clinician in feeling like a cultural outsider in relation to physiotherapy. And I've linked the blog in the show notes and would encourage you to have a read as it's the perfect accompaniment to our conversation. And this is the first time that I've directly focused on issues of culture and ethnicity on the podcast and Geeta provided the ideal opening to these important issues. And I've taken so much away from listening to her experiences, and I'm sure you will too. So I bring you Dr. Geeta Ramdhari. Geeta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So this is great to, to speak with you. I, um, I'm thinking about the previous outsider sessions that I've had. There's only been three, and they've all been kind of, I suppose I'd classify them as kind of epistemological outsiders. They're people that have a point of difference about the kind of assumptions around knowledge that their professional colleagues might take and the subsequent stuff which is taught at the universities and colleges. That's the thing about there's myself, Aaron and Rob. I mean, there's some ethical and some differences around values as well. But in your case, you've got, you wrote this lovely blog, I think last summer, about the kind of cultural difference, I suppose, that you perceived 
with your background and you entering into physiotherapy. And so I suppose you're a cultural outsider, Mike. If we were going to begin to classify outsiders, this is a, you're a, a kind of new version of outsider to the podcast. So it's great to, to explore this with you today. Great. Yeah. So before we do, maybe if you want to introduce yourself, your academic clinical background, and perhaps tied to that, your cultural background as well might be relevant. Yep. So um, I'm, uh, I currently work in the NHS. Um, I'm in a consultant allied health professional. And um, so I, I have a, a, a mixed role. Um, I'm a consultant therapist, so um, in, in working in neurology, particularly with people with neuromuscular diseases, muscular dystrophies, inherited neuropathies, etc. So it's, quite a, it's in specialist services. And for some years, I've also been doing research um, into rehabilitation interventions for those groups of people. Um, so I also lead a research group, um, the Neuromuscular Rehab Research Group, um, which sits within the UCL department. Um, and the hospital I work at is National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. And I've come back to, to my, my spiritual home, which is that mm. place um, at Queen Square, where I first started as um, a senior one physio back in 2001. That's in old money in NHS terms. And um, I worked there clinically as um, a full-time clinical physio and then did my master's at University of Brighton in 2003. I've completed that. And then in 2004, did my PhD at UCL exploring biomechanics um, and gait compensations in people with these conditions. And so I had spent 11 years after that, needed a job after doing my PhD, working as a lecturer at St George's University. So I was a lecturer of um, many physio students, but we also taught other healthcare professionals there. So some of my observations are, are have a, um, an educator feel um, and some of them have a, an, a clinician feel as well and, and interactions with patients. And I have also been dipping my toe into this as a researcher as well and, and working with a group looking at um, the experience of physiotherapists um, who are aspiring to or have reached consultant level practice who are from ethnic minority backgrounds. And, and so the blog that you wrote, which I'll link in, in the show notes, was titled awakening to the impact of culture on how we deliver care and treat our colleagues. And it was a, it was a lovely blog and a really powerful kind of account of, I don't want to say a clash of cultures, but certainly an interaction between different values and, and assumptions around what physios in your case should be doing with patients and where those assumptions come from. But maybe if we start by you just outlining where that blog came from and what prompted you to, to sit down and write it. Sure. I mean, I've been, I, mean, I qualified in 1995. I'm quite old school now. Um, and it, I think it's, it's an accumulation of my experience in those years, clearly. But the big trigger for all of this was um, in summer of 2000, the murder of George Floyd made a lot of us stop take note, mm. reflect, and as a professional body, we reflected as well. And um, I'm part of the CSP BAME, which is the um, Black and Minority Ethnic uh, Diversity Network for this Charter Society of Physiotherapy. And I, I joined that and became quite active in that a couple of years before um, that happened. But of course, we, we really came together as a network and became very engaged with our professional body um, which was an interesting process, um, which took a lot of, of learning and reflection and and um, fr from both sides, I think. 
but I was also asked to speak on this on health inequalities. I was quite vocal on social media, as a few of us from that network were. And so I was asked to speak. And I had been interested in the idea of culture um, for some time. When I taught master students when I was working at St George's, I used to teach a session on culture, sports and exercise. And I'd done a lot of reading there about sports institutions and how culture of individuals and culture of those institutions often were not aligned and you know examples like women in golf or homophobia mm. in in football and you know we're hearing a lot of course with formula one and um lewis hamilton's stance now um but but back then it was even just reading about his early experiences so it, it, i i went back to some of that um literature and brought that together and then with some self-reflection um which is about me maturing as a clinician and, and a professional um and understanding actually where i was complicit in some of this as a younger person and younger person trying to sort of strike out my professional identity and assimilating to dominant cultures and actually realizing what i lost in that process so there's a lot of reflection there as well and and also how that impacted on patients um along the way along along the 30 years yeah you and you say in the, in the beginning of the blog that you that your assimilation what came with that was at the expense of your ethnic minority identity and i you may going to implicitly go into that in the blog but it wasn't you didn't develop it much more. I'd like to hear more. What was, at what expense? What did you lose or have to sacrifice? Well, I think it was about, I'm mixed heritage. Um, so my father is from Mauritius, um, Indian Mauritian. My great grandfather was an indentured labourer from India. Um, and my great grandparents were. I've been reading a lot about that actually recently. And that's a real eye opener, actually, about. The, um, the shift of, of labour from India and China, etc., around the colonies. And um, my mum is Irish from Southern Ireland. Um, and of course, there's interesting um, identities um, as well in the Irish community, particularly the Irish community living in the UK, um, who have also had their fair share of prejudice, particularly back when my parents got together in the um, early 70s and being a mixed-race mixed couple, um, it w- was a challenging time, very challenging. So, um, so that that's that's my background. And as somebody who lives in the UK from a mixed heritage, identity is is a, is an is an odd thing, and it's a shifting thing. You know, you you you. I'm outwardly look brown, so I um, people would assume I'm Indian or Asian. And that was always the assumption made at school. And by the, you know, I was called the P word here and there because that was outwardly what people perceived me as being. Um, and did experience some racism at school, um, as did my brother. Um, but then we would go to see our family in Mauritius. Um, my, my dad's of a very dark skinned tone, um, all my family are. And we would be called the white children. So our sense of belonging was really disrupted. We didn't really know where we belonged. We were, mm. we were always on the outside. So identity was a bit of a, a strange one for, for us growing up. And I think, that, you know, I'm now, there's now more people writing about sort of mixed heritage experiences. And, and I think this is not uncommon. And um, one thing it gave me was the ability to assimilate. I'm half white. You know, I've got a lighter skin tone. So, 
So what happened is that I cut my hair, I dressed a certain way, I went out, you know, the pub culture, etc. My, my family are not Muslim, so I could, you know, drink alcohol was not prohibited. Um, so I, I also had the privilege of being close enough to whiteness to be able to assimilate, whereas some of my family wouldn't have been able to, others, you know, with dark skin tones from different ethnic groups wouldn't have been able to. And I, I lost my connection with my my sort of my Hindu heritage, my Indian heritage, and Mauritian heritage through that, which I, I since have become very pro- developed a real pride in it actually, as well as my Irish heritage. You know, I have in my office here. I've got you know one Mauritian flag and one Irish flag on a little thing I've mm-hmm. got here, um, and um, because of th- that, that's me. That's that's what's made me um but for a while the, the i think when you're young you're you're stepping out into this new environment you want to be you want to belong you want to be included you want to be part of the 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 the, the team and be accepted then the i think the onus is on the person on the outside to assimilate i used to hear that actually when i was younger i used to hear it you know that some ethnic groups you know they they or they you know they 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 make an effort to to join in and then there's others who don't mm. and so why is it the onus always on the the minority group to assimilate and those that don't assimilate are seen as as being wrong somehow so so that that was an interesting perspective which i think still prevails but certainly that the reason i did it was because i was trying to find my professional identity as well and i realized early on that it was quite a um, you know, I, there were very few of us in our department who were of, of colour and it was very much pub culture and, you know, drinking culture. And back, this was back in the 90s, I think less so now. People are a lot more sensible. Um, but uh, but it, it was it was about um, fitting in. And did you recall examples of, you know, when you started your physiotherapy training and kind of conscious efforts to fit in i mean it may have been popping down to the pub but i suppose for a more educational sense and could you describe i think as an educator there was a situation around um some women who are muslim or students that didn't want to undress for practical kind of skills training and so i'm thinking you should describe that as an educator but i'm thinking about you as a student entering into this university with a with, with similar sorts of practices um I had less of an issue with that. I was um, very sporty as a teen, so I played a lot of hockey. So I was I was sort of around those those sort of environments, in, you know, changing rooms, etc. Everyone would get changed. So it wasn't I, it wasn't modesty as a as a religious requirement wasn't key in in my religion. Well, yes, to an extent, but also I grew up in a, in um, the south of England, a very white town. So I assimilated into that uh, culture as a teen as well, and those sports. You know, I was talking about the cultural sports and sport institutions earlier. So when I went, that wasn't uh, there wasn't. The, I think the the whole thing in in physio skills labs of everyone undressing actually caught us all a bit by surprise. <laughs> to be honest with you, as I don't think it was any more or less for me. And I, I think I think actually what was interesting at the time is that there were. In my year, about five of us who were from Black, Asian, um, a couple of overseas students, 
And there was a bit of, um, not not with all of us, but with a couple of us sort of, we kind of gravitated a little bit to each other. Um, I mean, I, I also, I, you know, I had good friends there who were white and still good friends now. But there was um, a tendency for that to happen. And, and one of my colleagues, he, he sort of had a bit of a, a tough time initially. And so he, he came to me when that was happening and he was Asian as well you know so there was a sort of a bit of a camaraderie there I think because we all knew you know we, we were a little different and physiotherapy in those days had a reputation for being a very sort of middle-class ladies um twin set and pearl sort of professional and it, you know it kind of was <laughs> there were very few men in our year um there were a few few um friends of mine who were english who were from more working class backgrounds and um, who were on the course i think this college i went to was a bit more diverse it was in um, east london it was a bit more diverse they made a real effort actually to open up who was coming in on the course compared to some of the colleges back then which actually was really ahead of the game and I think they still are it was University of East London I think they still are really one of the most diverse um, courses um, for, for physiotherapy which is excellent that they've kept those values going. So I suppose now we can go into that example in the blog where you describe the situations I mentioned that colleagues were amazed that these handful of Muslim students just didn't know they had to undress. And I'm guessing they were also amazed that you know, how could you possibly do physiotherapy or learn physiotherapy without seeing a kind of semi-new body. And you talk about where those assumptions come from. And and I suppose the assumptions are most apparent when, if you imagine, and I had the same experience, not the same experience, but the same experiences of undressing in practical classes for osteopathy, your first day year one, it's completely usually, for most people, pretty unusual experience. But by the third week or, you know, the fifth week, you can't wait to get your clothes off. It just becomes so natural, if you like, and so intuitive. But but (laughs) so yeah, you can see how those assumptions just get built into courses. But yeah, so perhaps expand on on that example in the blog. Yeah, I I think the the people who were teaching at that time um, were you know, from from the the majority. They were they I think they were colleagues who were from that background I was talking about earlier, you know, that, that you thought of as physio. Um they also had perhaps known other people who were physios, you know, they were a bit more socialized into physio and and healthcare, maybe their families were doctors, you know, so that they were a bit more um assimilated into that. That year we had um a lot of students came in through clearing and we had actually one of our highest numbers of of students from ethnic minorities and so we I I think we probably got students who were um, perhaps looking at another course maybe hadn't gone in depth into into what physiotherapy was about or or you know had done much following of physios shadowing etc and it's, it's interesting because also, we find with physio, I don't know what it's like with osteopathy, but a lot of people come into physio via sports interests. So they want to be physios for sports teams, etc. And again, it's that sort of changing room culture, etc. But I think if you discover the profession through another route, perhaps that is missed. Um, and we, when this was raised in the, I, I, I will never forget the staff meeting where it happened. Um, you know, a couple of people threw their hands in there. Well, what did they expect? It's physiotherapy. And, and then one of my colleagues said, but yes, this isn't written down anywhere. 
why would they why would that be an expectation well they should know well why and i don't then one another um colleague um who's, who's jewish actually and she said but actually do we need to undress so much for to be able to learn these skills what why why aren't we looking at alternative ways of, of educating our students uh, but i think there was a core of colleagues who were just seem to refuse to to try and and give any any make any effort to change things and it was left to myself and and another colleague who um his who is from the middle east um and he had obviously had a real understanding of where it came from in the quran about modesty etc which was actually very helpful um but it was basically left up to me and him to sort out and and it was as simple so in fact we went to the students and they were happy if there were screens um and they were in same sex pairings etc um so and and if there was somebody who really didn't want to then as long as they were paired with somebody who didn't mind the fact that they wouldn't their partner wouldn't address it would be just them they were fine so they they managed and, and after that we had students who um we had one student who wore um full veil um and um and but she she never made a fuss she just sort of got on with it and just worked it out with her peers so it just didn't need to be this sort of big hands in the air why didn't they realize it's their fault um i felt the you know the blame was being shoved on the students um when actually it was a rigidity in in the attitude yeah. um on on how physio students should be educated um and it, it was it was it it was not I wasn't a lone voice there and there were other voices that said but hang on a minute why 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 aren't we challenging this um interestingly um those of us who who are from other minority groups and you know, my Jewish colleague and then um but there were others as well um but yes it, it was it really struck me and at that time I I actually emailed around other educators across the UK to find out what other colleges had done and certainly it'd been an issue in Birmingham and I think in Bradford as well where there's sort of high higher numbers of of people from from communities where this would be an issue uh, and yeah they just used screens and it wasn't a big bother it, it was just a particularly it would just been made a real issue of and I, I just didn't feel it was it was necessary and it I thought was very short-sighted and it did make me think at the time why we had to fit that particular mold because I never fitted that mold so why why did that and and there's another story i tell in the blog about how there were attitudes towards chronic pain and pain in people particularly from asian backgrounds and um in it was it was when i was working um at a, at a, in a, in, a, in a london hospital um but where colleagues from similar backgrounds to to my my educator colleagues were quite sneering actually about the 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 reports of pain we we had a a, a brilliant talk from professor Mick Thacker who is a pain specialist who's fantastic and he was really challenging it in his talk um saying you know you what we have to understand is that for people to express pain when english isn't their first language and in particular in languages where there are many words for pain how, how do you then get that across and there was just sort of very sneering response in the seats around me and the colleagues and it, it dawned on me then that and I was quite quite I'd only been qualified about three four years at that point that my Irish grandmother and my Mauritian Indian grandmother would be treated very differently by these colleagues sat, I was sat amongst and I found that actually really upsetting and really made me very angry but I was it was just me in the audience to be able to turn around and go and to call them out would have been really 
very challenging. And I didn't have the confidence back then. Now I would, but but not back then. Because, you know, thinking back to the example with the student, with the subsequent the screens and the various um, kind of changes they're learning that were made, I mean, you know, I was a clinical tutor and taught manual therapy skills with an osteopathy. You have similar, you know, similar things. Students, for cultural reasons, didn't want to get undressed and, you know, educators, some were more bothered by it than others. And I think at that point, you know, you can, this, I think with physiotherapy, certainly with osteopathy, there's, the body is really the center of, of learning. Like you need to be able to see the body in all its kind of form and, and kind of glory, be able to touch the body. That These are the kind of the assumptions which underpin the learning that if there's anything which is in the way of touching or observing or looking or learning from the body, then that's, that's a bad thing. Like you just can't learn osteopathy if you can't physically touch the skin or physically see the curvature of the spine, like any kind of clothing just impedes that. And that, that's at least from osteopathy's point of view, that's a, that's where many of the the disagreements from tutors or educators would come from, or how can they possibly develop palpation if they can't touch the the skin or touch the muscles? How can they possibly learn kind of assessing movement if they can't see someone move? And you've got to touch as many bodies as you can. So it seem if this, let's say, three or four group of uh, Muslim students or students that didn't wish to get undressed, if they're just working within themselves, if you like, or they're not they're not working with males, for example. Then again, that that's that compromises their learning. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I would counter some of that and sort of say, well, but they weren't objecting to that. They were happy to do that, but wanted to do it with a degree of privacy. Some of those um, women were people who would have, um, who wouldn't, weren't going to go into the NHS particularly and actually said that they wanted to work, you know, in female-only clinics, etc., to be able to serve their communities. And if we think about some of those communities, if we think about, you know, here in London, Tower Hamlets, some of the, the, the health inequalities and the poor access to services for many women from, um, from these backgrounds, from Muslim backgrounds in Tower Hamlets, for example, because of, they are frightened of, um, of, of being, you know, of exposure or, or being, touched or evaded in some way. So actually having women-only clinics. And so they're, they're doing that with a, with a lot of um, services now in terms of like um, female-only pulmonary rehab groups and, you know, the, the, in the communities. So actually, if we want to think about who we're serving, and this is the whole reason that we, with with um, a lot of the schools of physio which, which have NHS funding allocated to them, it's about serving your local community. And, and in East London, where we were, and in South London, where St George's is, if we want to be serving our communities, then we need to, to be actually tailoring our services to match the needs of mm. those communities. So in a way, that bringing those students through, and yes, their, their learning aids may have been paired back, and they were, they were not against touch, they were, they were there interacting, but it was how they practised and how they did it, preserving their own modesty, and that, mm. that, was, that was not an issue, that was not on the table. But it, then it would allow them to be able to develop services and clinics, etc., that would serve their communities for, that are really not accessing healthcare in the way that, that the, the vast majority of the, the white British population are. I think following I mean, that brings us nicely to your the second example in the blog, which you talk more about your own experience as a clinician and using kind of touch, essentially, or, or, or 
palpatory interaction, we want to call it, with a with a older Asian gentleman, I think. And it was your cultural sensitivity which allowed you to tailor that interaction. It wasn't really your physiotherapy training per se. I mean, if you'd done the the manual therapy technique, whatever it was, according to the textbook, that individual would have been potentially offended or or humiliated, I think you you describe in, in the blog. So again, maybe just describe that cultural sensitivity that your upbringing affords you and how that's brought into your physiotherapy, your clinical practice. Absolutely. it's. I think what happens is when you grow up in this country, and I hear this from lots of, of friends and colleagues who grow up in this country, is that you wear a different mask for different scenarios. You you may have, have you heard of the, the um, whole phenomenon of code switching? Mm. I talk about it in some of my other blogs. So code switching is where you change how you speak, how you interact. It's, you, it's like you have a different hat on for different scenarios. So I'm how I'm talking to you now is quite different to what I'm like with all of my Mauritian friends, for example. When I'm in with, with my family and um, my accent will change and I know it does and we, we throw in words and that sort of thing. But... When I went on, it, so I'm, I'm a neurological physiotherapist. We use, um, so there's a, something called bow bath training, um, where there's a lot of hands-on facilitation of movement. We use um, sort of sensory guidance and um, it's a whole school of thought um, and, and, and way of practicing. It's very UK based. And so a lot of us were trained in that back then. And it was on one of those courses where it was quite an intimate, procedure that was happening for for people because it was mainly for people who've had strokes and how you activate through sensory input and proprioception etc and try and get activation that way and um it it can it's an approach that can be accused of being quite dogmatic as well and uh you know you can only do it this way uh, and there was a, for me as quite a junior clinician at the time there was quite a sense of that in though you'd go to those sessions and uh, those training courses and you know if you didn't you know, magically get somebody to stand up with one hand, then you were never going to be a robot mm-hmm. specialist. And um, and we were made to feel like, I've certainly felt like that. Many of us were made to feel like that um, at the time, the way it was taught at the time. So, but but I went, I was quite inspired on this course. It was our three-week robot course. And I went to then back to St. George's Hospital. I was working at the time and thought, well, I'm going to try this out. You know, I, I, I will, I will, you know, levitate people with my hands. Um, and, um, and and it was it, th- this was the situation, and of course there I had my my professional hat on. I was thinking all the, very much about what we were doing in that session. It was all it was it was again. I think if I remember back, I think there was I think it was all very British. There was what I think one person there was Dutch, and but it was all very European focused, and so th- none of that was a was an issue, wasn't a problem. None, none of of what we were doing with the handling. And it wasn't until I saw somebody from from a very similar background to my family sitting in front of me that all of a sudden the context changed and that there are things that I would do and say with all of my English professional friends that I necessarily wouldn't in front of my family and that clash happened. And that was when I realised if this was my uncle or this was my dad and someone was doing this to my dad, it would be humiliating for him. And I don't think mm. that my colleagues would necessarily realise that because of the way that you just put your hand through their leg and put a hand on the glutes. And, you know, although we're thinking it very much from a biomechanical and an anatomical perspective, we you know it's, 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 but 
actually that the intimacy of that manoeuvre um, for somebody who didn't have that knowledge and that aspect, and it was being done to them when they're very vulnerable um, after having a stroke and being in hospital, um, actually how enormous that would be. Um, and it was just because all of a sudden my masks, my professional masks slipped, my little, you know, Indian Mauritian mask was underneath going, hang on a minute, this isn't right, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. This this is wrong, I can't do this to this gentleman. And of course, it was only because I have that other identity and that other worldview that that occurred to me, whereas my other colleagues who were, who were from British backgrounds, who were tre- still treating people from these Asian backgrounds, wouldn't have had that same mm-hmm. realisation. So how might your colleagues attain that kind of cultural competence you describe it or that insight if they're not from those backgrounds so we all want to be entirely sensitive to to people's kind of values and what's comfortable for them but so how 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 in your experience you can build this into education i saw a beautiful infographic on infographic on twitter yesterday about this about um, a model of developing cultural sensitivity and the first thing is, is about being curious. So if you work in an area where there are people from a particular group, for example, so, you know, it's, it's about learning more about them mm. and actually actively going out and doing that. So, you know, it's, it's that curiosity and that desire to want to change. Yeah which is quite different. Don't forget, those of us from the minority backgrounds, we've always had to assimilate. So it's a complete change in mindset for the people in the majority to to have to put the work in to the change. We're used to it. <laughs> we've been doing it for all our lives um, and the work hasn't been done the other way. So I had a very interesting discussion um, on another podcast, funny enough, with a colleague who was talking about how we might change our social behaviour mm-hmm. um, as, when we're socialising as, as teams and professionals. And I have a, you know, a particular student who's from, a, from the Middle East and had to think about, you know, we were, I was going to have a barbecue for everybody and just wanted to be sure that, that when they came, um, that with alcohol being present, et cetera, what would be acceptable, what wouldn't, the halal meat, et cetera. And the the colleagues said to me, who was doing the interview, but 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 why should everybody change for that one person? And I said, well, I would rather make a small change and include everybody than exclude. And it, it's 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 interesting that people are reluctant to put the work in or to make a change, even a small change, to be inclusive, um, and or put the work in to understanding a different perspective that isn't the majority and that isn't your own. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about an episode I did a while ago on relativism, episode 52 with Professor Martin Kirsch, and he talks about how relativism offers a, a position of epistemic humility that, that our moral convictions and our truths are really only locally situated. So I'm thinking about this notion of cultural humility that that relativism may help us recognise our own cultural background and positioning, but also be interested and curious and open to understand the cultural backgrounds and cultural truths of others. 
Yeah, I think I think one thing that that is there's a couple of things that I think are really important to do with it relates to taking those other views actually about clinical interactions, but also about allyship um, and how I also realised that although my experience was a particular experience and my, you know my belonging etc all the things we've talked about that actually I still have really do have quite a lot of privileges as somebody of mixed heritage and half white and I think that the experience of my of my colleagues around me and how we were really tried to make sense of what happened after the George Floyd murder and Black Lives Matter and it, it was an uncomfortable time for me to face my own privilege um, where, as somebody who'd also experienced racism. And, um, and, but I had to do that to understand that, that there are anti-black uh, attitudes out there with some within my own communities that need calling out. The allyship is important, not just to sort of say, I will you know, be an ally, but, but standing aside, giving more voice to people who actually haven't been heard what I realise is that, yeah, I had some experiences, you know, through the NHS and experienced some things which which were negative. But on the whole, it's been quite positive. But I know a lot of colleagues of mine who also have come through who are from black backgrounds in particular have found it very difficult to stay in the NHS. And I think looking at institutions and how welcoming they are to difference and how certain departments work um, is really important. Um, and, you know, was it my proximity to whiteness that, that led me to having an easier time? Probably. And if perhaps if I looked different, um, sounded different, and certainly now I'm realising and, and hearing and um, from colleagues is that that does seem to be the case. Our overseas colleagues have, a really, have not had an easy time, as well as our colleagues from black backgrounds. So that we all have to go on that uncomfortable journey and to understand it. I think understanding your privilege is really important. Um, and we all have privilege. The fact that we are in these professions mean that there is a degree of privilege which has allowed us to access that, that, that others will not. We will, we will always have that some un, unearned advantage just from how we're born and who we are. And, and that is, that's okay. I mean, we're not bad. Nobody's a bad person because they might have been born into wealth or born in a certain skin colour. But it's what you then do and how you then speak for the people who don't. And standing aside to give voices is really important. Mentoring and allyship is key. I was involved recently with um, the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy do a, in their conference do a founders lecture. And you might have heard of um, Professor Stephanie Nixon in, in Canada, who's she devised this a framework. It's the coin model of privilege and it's the way to understand and how intersection work and... Where I think I've found it very useful is when there are quite heated interactions on social media. People maybe from working class backgrounds say, well, I've, you know, I've had to work hard and have it, but, but, you know, you're saying I'm privileged, but it, it, it's them understanding that, well, well, if you look at a certain coin, as Stephanie puts them, like being born into wealth, for example, and you weren't born into wealth, then from that perspective, you're on the underside of the coin, which is oppression, rather than the top of the coin, which is privilege, but on other coins, you know, you are heterosexual, for example, so you're on the top of the coin, or you are 
cisgender so you're on so it's 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 knowing it, i think it's just very useful because it's it, it's a way of explaining privilege without it without it sounding like you're waving your you're wagging your finger at somebody and going you've had it easy because lots of people have not had it easy for many many situations there could have been people who have been born into to wealth who are from quite privileged backgrounds but who have not had a stable home life for example you know my parents are still married and you know were very much pushing education so that was a real privilege that that was a real position of privilege my my family background and that was very important to, to, to where I am now. So it, it, it is about understanding that, having that soul search about where do I sit on each coin and then using my privilege, the fact I have a bit of a little bit of a platform now on, on things like Twitter to be able to push push other perspectives and push as well and make the challenges. Now I'm quite senior. I have been putting my head above the parapet and maybe I come across quite grumpy sometimes, but it's it's a way of sort of saying, well, look, this isn't on actually because I can now challenge without necessarily being a big threat to my career. Um, so I can do that. So that's something that I, I will do now because it, if it means that somebody stops and has a think or maybe they don't accept the challenge, but it means I can make that challenge and get that whatever it is discussed without the fear of perhaps losing something in my career. It's great to have you share your platform on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, my grumpy Twitter page. <laughs> <laughs> Gita, thank you so much. You're welcome. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain and I'll see you next time.